considering these important questions that Pilate asks. Last week we considered the question, what accusation do you bring against this man? And saw how many voices were calling for his innocence and acquittal. This week he asks this important question, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a king then? And we will consider the uh, question that's in the middle of our text next week as he asks cynically, what is truth? Well, starting in John 18, we'll read together starting in verse 33 uh, down to verse 37. Excuse me. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray for light to break forth from your word to teach us your way. We pray that the blessed reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, which indeed has become with his arrival, would continue not only in our hearts, but through our church and into the world, even as he has sent us into the world, so we pray that we too would be a people not of this world, but as he was, sent from you to this world and for its good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Warren explained in our call to worship, King Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest ruler of the greatest empire that the world to that time had ever seen. A mighty conqueror who spent his life building up Babylon for his glory. But God gave that mighty man a dream, a troubling dream. In his dream, he saw this great statue that we heard interpreted with a head of gold and a chest and arms of silver and belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron. It was unstable. Its feet and its toes were of iron and clay. But there was this great magnificence about it. It provoked admiration. There it stood, a united statue, magnificent. Along came a little rock, nothing to look at, insignificant. 
And yet, in his dream, that rock shatters the statue and causes it to collapse until it is blown away like chaff in the wind. And that little rock grows and becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. That statue, we read, represented the four successive world kingdoms. And that little rock, the kingdom of God, apparently is to be very unimpressive at its beginning. There's to be no glory, insignificant, able to be overlooked. But that little rock shatters all those other kingdoms until they blow away and God's kingdom fills the earth. And this was a troubling dream for Nebuchadnezzar because he lived for his empire. And Daniel has to tell him that your kingdom is going to fall. That for which you are living, that for which you have labored and, stri and striven is vanity, soon to be destroyed. It's one of the great scenes of history, I think. Here you have this great empire builder, Nebuchadnezzar, who spends his life creating the mightiest empire on earth. This world conqueror who can command the life and death of his subjects with a word. And Daniel is sent to tell that man, there's a kingdom coming that's going to bring yours and all other kingdoms of the earth to nothing. That for which you are living and working and striving is vanity. There's only one king in one kingdom that can remain forever. And it makes us ask, what are we living for? What are we working for? What are we striving for? Whose kingdom will endure? In our passage today, we have a very similar scene, a different confrontation to be sure, but there stands the Roman governor with all the political and military might of Rome at his disposal. And bound before him stands a Galilean peasant. Not much to see. Unimpressive. Nothing to cause men to marvel, as the prophet said. But all of Rome was about to be bowing before that Galilean peasant. Rome itself would collapse and break up into pieces. And that peasant's kingdom would fill the earth. Pilate looks at the man before him, uh, incredulous. Are you the king of the Jews? And in the original, the you is emphatic. That is to say, you? You're the king of the Jews? Doesn't look like much. Doesn't look like much today even. In fact, 150 years ago, even at the height of Christian Victorian England, Charles Spurgeon said, to this day, pure Christianity in its outward appearance wears on the surface few royal tokens. True, there is a nominal Christianity that's accepted and approved by men, but, he says, evangelical doctrine is at a discount. Holy living is censured, and spiritual mindedness is derided. The real Christ of today among men is unknown and unrecognized as much as he was among his own nation 18 years ago. Well, Pilate looks at him and says, with some sarcasm in his voice, are you the king of the Jews? What kind of king is this? What kind of kingdom do you have? And that will be our study for today. We will consider how this king and this kingdom are from heaven, of truth, for peace, and over the world. 
from heaven of truth for peace over the world. First, a kingdom from heaven. Jesus explains in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And you'll remember that throughout the Gospel of John, that phrase, this world, has a pretty negative sense, right? The worldly sense of that word. Uh, my kingdom is not of this world, the world of Pilate, the world of Roman swords and spears and crucifixion, the world of imperial domination and hierarchy and violence and injustice. No, this, this world is not either the origin or the character of Christ's kingdom. He's a very different kind of king. The kings of this earth rule by coercion over territories and seek to conquer other territories through their military might. They force their subjects to pay taxes so that they might live in palaces and build up their armies and hire people to collect more taxes. They care about prestige and privilege and pomp and show. The rulers of this world have historically pushed others down to lift themselves up, and absolute power has corrupted them absolutely. Left to themselves, the kingdoms of this world destroy the world that they sprang from. But Christ's kingdom is from a different place. It is entirely different and operates on the opposite principles as he told his disciples earlier. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see how different his kingdom is not of this world, but of heaven. And several translations also make it clear that Jesus is uh, saying, the implication is here uh, from the uh, ek or ex, if you know Latin, it's uh, exactly the same. It's not from this world. Compare verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not from here. When some people read that the kingdom is not of this world, they wrongly conclude it has nothing to do with this world. It's a different place altogether. It's in heaven, and it has nothing to do with uh, the regions here below. But that's not the idea. It's from heaven. But it clearly has an earthly destination. As Jesus speaks about coming into the world as its king, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world... Uh, Father, I also have sent them, the disciples, into the world. There is an earthly destination for not only Jesus, but for you, the disciples. And so we can pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Christ's kingdom has an heavenly origin and character, but the Lord has come into this world, and he has sent you into this world, and we pray, thy kingdom come, so that the words of verse 37 might continue, for this cause I have come into this world that I should bear witness to the truth. So although Christ and his kingdom, and uh, we are not of this world, he says we are not of this world, we are yet very active in the world, live according to very different priorities and principles and purposes. Christ's kingdom is not world. 
in its character, methods, or origin. So verse 36, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus isn't denying a worldly uh, effect or even a worldly destination, but he's saying that he doesn't come from this world. His kingdom is not from this world, but it is for this world in that sense. So he himself came into the world to bring it the truth. We are sent into the world on the same mission. And the goal of the kingdom, as Isaiah said, that at last the earth should be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So my point is, and I hope I'm not beating it to death, we shouldn't conclude that the kingdom is an otherworldly, spiritual, heaven reality that has nothing to do with you or the people of this world. Jesus was sent into the world. You were sent into the world. Here you are. Uh, in the previous chapter, Jesus explained uh, in prayer, they are not of the world, the disciples, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. So you're not of the world. The kingdom isn't of the world, but you are. And we are sent into the world. A kingdom that is from heaven, point one. Sent into the world to be, point two, a kingdom of truth. A kingdom of truth. Caesar's kingdom and all that are like it advance in this world by means of force and threat and conquest. Christ's kingdom advances with very different weapons that Pilate refuses to acknowledge the truth. Verse 37, for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate, we take up next week, says, what is truth? I'll simply say that in our passage, both Pilate and the Jewish leaders, you notice, are both trying to establish themselves, their authority, by means of lies. They are seeking power, not truth. They are both disregarding the truth in their own way, falsely to accuse Jesus in the first case, or falsely to sentence him to death in the second case. And this is made very obvious when the Jewish rulers are asking Pilate to release the true insurrectionist, Barabbas, but to execute Jesus, a false insurrectionist. And the irony would not have been lost on Pilate. Neither side is interested in the truth, only power. Jesus, however, is not interested in manipulating the truth for the sake of power. He's not interested in twisting the truth of how things really are in this world. And he is not interested in twisting the truth of God to meet anyone's preferences. He is interested in the truth as it is. He's interested in making God as he is and not as we might want him to be known. The kingdom of this world seeks power to control behavior, while the kingdom of God seeks to transform lives from the inside out, renewing the mind and the heart. And this also means that Christ's kingdom must be entered in a very different way than the kingdoms of this world that might want you to present a passport or a visa. To enter Jesus' kingdom, you need to accept the truth. 
That's the price of entry. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. As I said in a previous point, the heavenly and the earthly do overlap at certain points. The same person is a citizen here of heaven and of earth. Sometimes they even have similar concerns, but they are entered very differently. Are you on the side of truth? For whoever is on the side of truth will listen to Christ the King. We must hear and respond to and embrace the truth that Jesus came to bring, not picking and choosing, not going through the motions. Jesus presents the truth to, to us as an invitation, even to Pilate. At this point in the trial, Pilate is, is given an implicit invitation. You know, everyone who's on the truth hears my voice, but Pilate isn't interested. What's truth, he says, walks away. How will you enter Christ's kingdom? You cannot be coerced into it. You can't be forced into it. In fact, it takes a miracle. For Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or as James puts it, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. That's how you get in. Are you on the side of truth? His is a kingdom of truth. And we'll learn much more about that next week. But thirdly, it's a kingdom for peace. Verse 36, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. As if to say, your soldiers now hold me, Pilate, but my followers will not attack you even to save me from death. Your Roman Empire, Pilate, is based on the injustice of violence. My heavenly kingdom is based on the justice of nonviolence. The kingdoms of this world advance through violent attack, and the kingdom of heaven advances through willing self-sacrifice. Jesus would be condemned as a substitute that others may go free. And Jesus makes clear to Pilate that his kingdom is a fundamentally different than the kingdom of this world, because it's not established or maintained or advanced by fighting. In the ancient world, you became a king in one of two ways. Either you inherited a throne or you seized it through violence because your dad had conquered. Kingdoms are founded in blood. The kingdom of Christ is founded in blood, but it's his own. In 1988, George Bush Sr. called for a kinder, gentler America. But America, for all that rhetoric, has not become kinder or gentler. But Jesus operates on very different principles. And where he reigns, there is compassion and kindness and peace. And we are called to manifest that kingdom of peace by returning evil for good. Uh, sorry, other way around. Returning good for evil. Turning the other cheek, loving, blessing, doing good, praying for our enemies. Far from seeking retaliation, we seek our enemy's well-being. These important words have an echo in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. as He says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. We're not fighting as though human beings were our enemies. We are struggling Paul says elsewhere, against dark spiritual forces. 
described as thoughts and arguments and pretensions, not using the weapons of this world, but swords and spears and shields. No, instead we are engaging lies and deceptions, armed with what Paul calls the whole armor of God, the truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, the word of God, prayer, and so forth. And above all this is sacrificial love, not the violent grasping at power by which Rome was established. Jesus has said that it is our love above all else that we are to be known for and that will persuade the world of the truth that Christ has come into it as its Savior and King. So, still at the heart of the heavenly kingdom today is a king who has given himself in love for those who hate him. And that should manifest itself in all of our dealings with other people. This takes courage. As we read earlier, the disciples that night, they all lacked courage. They fled. But then on the other side of the cross, they understand. And they are willing to stand before the powers of this world and testify before kings and rulers and give their lives in order to bear witness to the truth. And what began with those apostles continued with the martyrs and continues to this very day in foreign mission fields and churches in dangerous locations. Still, Christ is regarded as a threat. This strange, different sort of kingdom, different than anything Pilate had imagined, a kingdom without violence. I suppose it's true that in one sense, Pilate and, excuse me, Barabbas and Jesus were both revolutionaries. They, they both were eyeing the Roman government and were soon to cause a revolution. Both of them opposed Roman injustice, but they were opposing it in very different ways. And Christ's revolution was a kingdom of peace. Point three. Fourth and finally, it's a kingdom over this world. A kingdom over this world. In Rome's view and in Pilate's view, the secular ran the sacred. In the next chapter, verse 10, Pilate asks Jesus, Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus says, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above kingdom over the world. In 1974, the Anglican Archbishop Michael Ramsey visited Chile under its new regime. And uh, as he was preaching in a church, uh, the armed guard waited outside. And as soon as the service was over, the guard asked those who were inside, was there any politics in it? He must stay with things of the soul because politics is of us, is for us. And he patted the gun under his arm. I think many Christians might agree with that armed guard. The church in the West has bought heavily into the Enlightenment belief that the sacred and the secular have an unbridgeable gulf between them. But that is a modern and Western idea which would have never occurred to the ancients, ancients as it has not to many parts of the world today. Remember the inscription on the denarius, the common coin of that day. On the front it said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. 
On the other side, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. In Rome's view, and in Pilate's view, the secular ran the sacred. I mentioned earlier how the Roman governors even replaced Israel's high priest at will. That's why there was Caiaphas and Annas, both called high priests at the same time, if you remember from a couple weeks ago. So when Pilate says, don't you know I have power over you to crucify you or release you? And Jesus says, look, you could have no power against me unless it were given from you above. He says, you got it all wrong, man. Heaven rules over earth. And it's to be a reminder to Pilate that he is going to be accountable to God from whom he has derived any authority he might exercise at the moment and to whom he will be accountable for how he exercises that power. The kings of the earth will also give an account. So to be clear about this matter, church and state certainly have their own spheres of authority, which our church has historically worked very hard and suffered very long to ensure. They are separate organizations and neither one has the right to appoint officers or authorities in the other. Nevertheless, Jesus is pointing out they are both under the same king. The state, we are taught, is to be obeyed insofar as its laws don't contradict the laws of God. But Jesus says quite clearly that the state is not ultimate. Hardly. The government is definitely not God. Governments left to themselves, tend to accrue more and more power. And if we are not careful, we might start even to believe that Caesar really may be divine. The states may have all the answers. The government may be able to give us everything we need and to solve all of our problems. Some people actually believe that rubbish. But Caesar has always proven to be a terrible god. And his laws, unjust, far less than divine. Well, some people come at it another way and say that the state ought to have nothing to do with regulating morality. But that won't work because as soon as laws are passed against things like a breach of contract or theft or murder and so forth, it's clear that morality is very much the concern of the law and, in fact, overlaps with the laws of God. We should not think that the powers that be have nothing to do with morality. Instead, we should ask whether their laws are moral and bear witness to the truth, recognizing that even in Jesus' case, sacrifice was the law of progress. We must render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, obedience, taxes, honor. But Jesus says we must render also to God the things that are God's, that is, our whole life, our whole selves, everything. We must live by the laws, but we must exceed them with our lives because ultimately we are looking to a higher law and a greater king. And the best citizens of this world are the citizens of heaven. You know, I came across a story from Ballymena in Northern Ireland recently, uh, an uh, uh, area of uh, Belfast. You, you might know the, the evangelical revival had a mighty effect there. It swept through 100 years ago. Um, and what an effect it had on the kingdoms of this world. Uh, the first quarterly constabulary meeting after the revival lasted five minutes because no crimes had been reported. 
in a major section of Belfast for three months. Zero crimes. It had come to a halt. The next meeting, the next quarter, no crimes reported in the last three months. Can you imagine? People in this town are worried about binge drinking. Well, in that day, a few distilleries even had to close down. They had binge drinking in Northern Ireland, and it came to a shuddering halt. All this means that the kingdom of heaven is for this world. It is transforming this world. It is bearing witness to the truth in this world, for the good of this world, and for the life of the world. And it's bringing the world forgiveness, reconciliation, sanctification, holiness. Christ has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The world may hate him because he testified that its deeds are evil, but the world will not be the same. And in Revelation, that song will at last be sung by all. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So what I'm saying is the state is accountable to God, just as the church is in its own matters. Pilate is in sin, as Jesus points out. He's, he says here, let's see, uh, you could have no power against me unless it had been given to you from above, verse 11. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Well, judgment begins with the house of God and the people of God that knew what they were doing are certainly in a greater sin than you. But their sin is not going to excuse Pilate's sin and God will judge the earth and its rulers with righteousness and bring his own righteousness to bear that all authority in heaven and earth being given to the Son that he might have a kingdom over this world that is overall in conclusion kind of a teaching heavy sermon today so hope that you're still with me um, during the French Revolution Voltaire and some others attempted to overthrow the Christian religion and replace it with the religion of reason with temples dedicated to reason and Voltaire made a great pronouncement that there would quote be a day when the name of Jesus Christ would be remembered no more. I heard of a minister who was taking a tour through the Louvre in Paris, and the tour guide said, that's the chair on which Voltaire pronounced that there would be a day when Jesus Christ and Christianity would no longer ever be remembered. It would be a part of the dust of history. The minister said, that chair right there? Yes. He leapt over the rope. He sat in the chair, and he said, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. For that is the truth. His kingdom is over all, and it cannot be turned back. And Jesus says to you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to you. This is the kingdom that you are to seek above all. In fact, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure that a man found hidden in a field which he hid and for joy sells all that he has to buy that field. Is that your view of the kingdom? Are you giving your all for it? For being a disciple involves much more than a few new behavioral patterns. It is a complete reordering of your life around a kingdom that will have no end. Around a kingdom that brings life and joy, peace, truth, righteousness to the world. In those days, the Christians were a tiny minority. 
but they were making a bold and daring statement about Jesus being Lord, making it from a great position of weakness and vulnerability. They were perceived as a threat to the established order. They attracted criticism, threats, punishment, even death. <coughs> and yet their threat to the world was not a threat of the usual kind. These were not the ordinary revolutionaries taking up arms to overthrow the regime and establish their own instead. No, but they did announce that mighty Rome, that this great kingdom, like every other kingdom, was soon to fall. And that its kings in a few years would be bowing before the king of kings before it collapsed. There is only one kingdom that will endure forever. And so you see, just as Daniel had to say to King Nebuchadnezzar, all that you are dreaming for, all that you are working for, all that you are fighting for, the very center of your being is going to crumble into nothingness. And that's a hard thing to hear, but maybe God has said that to you too. That for which you are living and working and striving, will it last? Is it vanity? There's only one kingdom that will last. Only the works that are done for it are not in vain in the Lord. Are you seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness? For it will not be long until heaven joins with earth in singing that hallelujah chorus. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord, for our King, Jesus Christ, for the reign that he has even over us, the King that has at least freed us even now from the hopelessness of despair, from the folly of this world, from the vanity of all that it pursues. We do not see yet all things subject to him, but we pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. May his will be done here in our lives, in this congregation, in this world. May his power extend through the nations. May the truth of God establish his rule in many hearts, in many lives. Bring the nations home, O Lord. Bring them under the glad and joyful, peaceful reign of our Lord Jesus. You have taken from us our sighs. You have given us a song in their place, the hallelujah chorus. You have given us hope. You have replaced mourning with joy, replaced sin and sorrow with righteousness and gladness. And we pray that your mercy to us in Jesus Christ would extend through us and that we would gain courage as we also are sent 
into the world, for we are not of it, but we are also in it. Cause your word to go forth, not to return void, but to do all that you have ordained to be accomplished through it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing that uh, promise of song.